Right now, as always, in my house, I can hear the traffic over the Tappan Zee Bridge. Lots of trucks and some motorcycles. I hear the birds chirping because it's a sunny day. I can hear a high-pitched electric hum coming from somewhere in the walls. The room feels still, kind of full and empty at the same time. I can hear the wind blow when I see the branches moving. I can hear my own voice somewhere in the back of my head. I can hear how small my room feels compared to how vast the Hudson River feels out my window. I can hear the pressure that the gray nimbus clouds are pushing down on me. I can hear the looseness of the blue sky behind them. I can hear the children running up and down my street in a nostalgic kind of way. The way that you feel above your stomach and behind your heart. I can hear the blood rushing past my ears because it was loosened up from the heat outside. I can hear myself cooling down, my heartbeat settling, blood slowing, ringing ceasing. I can hear close and I can hear far. I can hear industrial beeping from miles away. And I can hear the low breath coming out of my stomach when I speak. This is Miranda Louise, and you are listening to Feminist Sonic Futures from Music 1240S. The track you're hearing right now is Turiya and Ramakrishna by Alice Coltrane. Let's get into it. One of the main questions we ask in this class is, what is a feminist relationship to sound? Another way to think of that question is, What is a decolonial relationship to sound? I think of the word decolonial as more of a blanket term embodying feminism, anti-racism, anti-classism, the equalization of all vectors of oppression. If we want to ask, what is a decolonial approach to sound studies, we have to first ask, How is sound studies colonial? And that question really means, what are the power relations 
latent in sound relations. Regarding both the materiality of sound and the ideology of sound, the cultural production around it, how do we understand and begin to break down power relationships? I think Anna Maria Ochoa Gallier, in her essay Silence, has a good way of thinking about this power relationality. One's voice is associated with their identity, their personhood. It's associated with agency and control. The opposite of voice, silence, is associated with lack of agency, lack of identity or subjecthood. It's associated with political domination. Now the reason why this relationship between voice and silence is a colonial one is because it gives power, it gives voice, to white cis men. It gives power to the people on the colonial side of history. To decolonize sound practices, I don't think is to give more people a voice or take away the voice from the people that have it right now. I think to decolonize listening and sound practices is to change how that power is constructed and related. It's to change the power relationship between voice and silence, between speaking and listening. One of the most influential pieces that I read in this course was a piece by Owen Marshall on Sounding Out called Learning to Listen Beyond Our Ears, Reflecting Upon World Listening Day. Owen Marshall puts forth this idea of synesthesia as radical listening. He talks about how in Western culture, the sensorium, the assemblage of our five senses, is socially constructed. We think of each sense, hearing, sight, taste, touch, smell, as separate, discrete entities. Hearing is dissociated from all of our other sensory experiences. Marshall acknowledges how this is really socially constructed and argues for a more holistic, synesthetic experience of listening. A kind of listening that we do with all of our senses rather than just our ears. The point is to locate listening in the body rather than in the mind or the ears or logical progression of such. He promotes an affective form of listening, where listening is really just a feeling. Listening can be connected to the chills we get down our spine, the way our hairs on our arms lift up, a feeling we get in our stomach, in our throat. The process of listening isn't unilateral, but it's a holistic, physical experience. Marshall cites the Enloyu people of West Africa. They have a word that relates hearing with the sensations of eating, drinking, breathing, 
regulation of saliva, sexual exchanges, and also speech. Hearing and speaking are collapsed into the same notion, the same sentiment, the same sensation. One's sonic experience is not confined to the sonic world. It's based in affect, not in a medicalized body. Now I think this synesthetic idea of listening is decolonial, is feminist. I think the experiences of the body, of sensation and affect, are things that are devalued by Western society. They aren't logical or rational. In promoting an affective, sensory experience of listening, we're fighting against logicism as the one axis of power. We're fighting for more connectedness, more emotionality. We're fighting for empathy, essentially. Grounding experiences in affect grounds us in togetherness. We can have a sort of solidarity in affect in the way that we feel rather than the way that we think. When we ground our epistemology in affect rather than reason, we can feel for one another more strongly. We can empathize. We can come together. This, I think, at its core, fights against Western coloniality and individualism. It fights against power hierarchies and creates a sort of togetherness and collectivity. Now there's something else that I think is really special about this synesthetic, affective vision of listening. In this sensation, this experience of hearing, eating, drinking, having sex, speaking, all these things, hearing and speaking coexist within the same sensory experience. They aren't separated by an experience that I'm having versus an experience you're having of producing words. Speaking and hearing are both grounded in a sensory experience, and that affective experience is what's important here. I think what's really special about this is how speaking and hearing are collapsed into the same concept. It's breaking down the speaker-listener dichotomy. It's deconstructing that binary. I think this is really interesting. I think it sort of depoliticizes the voice-silence dichotomy. If speaking and listening are collapsed into the same concept, then voice and silence are too. They aren't situated on opposite ends of a binary, so they can't really be valued differently. There can't really be any sort of power hierarchy. Deconstructing the binary of speaker and listener deconstructs the binary of voice and silence and sort of sets off this chain reaction of associations. It deconstructs the association of voice with man, silence with woman, once we deconstruct one binary, all of the associated binaries are affected by that. 
If we conflate silence and voice into one sensory experience of affect, we're valuing the feminine mode of silence as much as the masculine mode of noise. We're essentially degendering the binary of silence and voice by deconstructing that binary in the first place. We're deconstructing the dichotomization of silence and voice that renders it gendered in the first place. However, there's one dichotomy that gets broken down here that I think is the most important to look at. The speaker-listener dichotomy inherently relies on the notion of self and other. Self is speaking, other is listening. The self-other binary is really the core of Western individualism. It's the core of Western coloniality that obstructs empathy. If we deconstruct the speaking and listening dichotomy, we start to deconstruct the self-other dichotomy. This points to a sort of collectivity rather than individualism. I think about it like this. If you take a collective as a unit of a whole, rather than a person, the experience of listening is always simultaneously the experience of speaking. The two are simultaneous, they co-produce each other. In the individual, you have one or the other, speaking or listening. In the collective, you can't separate the two. I think Viewing sound practices from the point of view of the collective, rather than the individual, really gets at something decolonial. I think this idea is expressed in the essay, The Pleasure is Principle, Sounding Out and the Digitizing of a Community, by Aaron Trammell, Jennifer Lynn Stover, and Leanna Silva. The authors of this piece are talking about establishing a collective solidarity in the affect of giving voice, making visible, and listening. They're promoting positive listening practices. But when viewed from the collective rather than from the individual, this practice of listening comes full circle. If everyone is listening to one another, everyone simultaneously must be speaking to one another. You can't have a listener without a speaker. In the collective, they're simultaneous, they're together. When you think about a collective of people, rather than just an individual, encouraging positive listening practices is the same as encouraging positive speaking practices. People without a voice are encouraged to speak by the encouragement of everyone else to listen. I think this collective, holistic view encourages the positive aspects of our relationality to sound, of speaking and listening for everyone. Rather than being encouraged just to speak or just to listen, rather than trying to redistribute the power of the voice or redefine the power in silence, we're doing both by deconstructing the dichotomy between voice and silence. They are always together in the collective. They are always a simultaneous experience 
grounded in affect. When we have affective relationships to sound, when we have a collective view of ourselves, we can't value voice more than silence. They're valued the same because the experience is together, the experience is collective. Listening is speaking when you have an affective, empathic relationship with someone with whom you're engaging in sound practices. This togetherness, this idea of the collective, is really the core of what I'm talking about. What I think works against coloniality, patriarchy, racism, heteronormativity, all these things. I think trying to give a voice to people that don't have it right now is working within the same systems of power that we currently see. It's still valuing voice over listening, sound over silence. And this power relationality exists in the first place because of the binary that's set up between noise and silence. However, when viewed from the stance of the collective, this binary doesn't exist. When thinking about the collective, radical listening is the same as radical noisemaking. It's the collective, affective experience of sound. The experience of sound is collective in the body. It's based on a multiplicity of senses, a multiplicity of somatic experiences. And it's collective in the group. The experience of sound is based on a multiplicity of people, all in affective, empathic relationships with one another. I think these ideas are really decolonial at their core. Working against Western coloniality is working against Western individualism. It's working against the self-other binary that gives way to all of these other binaries. Man, woman, white, non-white, speaker, listener. All the binaries that allow for power hierarchies. When we deconstruct self and other through the sound practice of deconstructing speaker and listener, we start to break down the very structure of power relationality. We start to break down the individualism that results in interpersonal hierarchies. In viewing the collective, we can't distinguish between self and other. We can't distinguish between the experience of speaking and listening. There is only the collective experience of sound and affect. 